So if you ask yourself the question, where are poor people healthy, educated, and safe? And conversely, where are affluent people not healthy, educated, and safe? The answer is nowhere. Mm -hmm. So the question is, how do you go from poverty to prosperity? There's only one way that I know of, which is entrepreneurial-led economic activity, which leads to the appreciation of education. There's a fallacy that education, all you have to do is put in better resources. But how does that, so how does that tie into the neighborhood? It ties into the neighborhood because what I'm saying is an economic principle. What I thought is if I can solve an emotional and financial problem, the emotional problem was, hey, when I grew up in an all-Black neighborhood and my life was better, okay, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do the same thing. Okay. But also, what's the financial problem? This is a transitional neighborhood. You, as it improves, you will get value on your money. Your house will appreciate. So you want to get in early and you can solve these two problems. Mm -hmm. So what I was saying is, in the case of how is it that, why is that community better now? I think it is a principle of social capital. So what I was saying is there, there, the way people go from poverty to prosperity Again, it is entrepreneurial-led economic participation in the modern parts of the economy that create wealth. Then number two, it, it, that leads to the appreciation of education because without the appreciation of education, all the resources in the world don't matter. Mm -hmm. And then number three, social capital. Social capital is when you reach back and you pull people from your community along, but more important, you create an aspirational roadmap for your young people so they know where to place their bets. So as we talk about this issue of affirmative action, yes, topical. So there are people who are deluded into believing that blacks are the primary beneficiaries of affirmative action. Yeah, I, I think that's bullshit too, because I'm South Indian. I came here when I was seven years old. Now, you know my story, like I grew up very poor. So I have a different path than most Indian people I know, but I would I would hundred percent say that it's helped Indians, you know, every everyone from uh, Asia more than it's helped Black people. Like that, I will hundred percent say because I still remember filling out the financial aid forms for the FASA, whatever the the grant, you know, the government money grant thing, and it, it was always confusing to me. Like the the tabs, like Black, White, Hispanic. Asian or Pacific Islander it's like okay I guess I'm that you know so because I'm obviously from Asia right but I didn't realize that that actually was a metric also that people like it actually helped me to get into that program and I know I think there's been I think the highest education level in the U.S. is Indian and I, but I think having the access from affirmative action absolutely helped us well here's what I would say the biggest the most educated group in the United States are actually Nigerians Nigerians yeah yeah you're right the Indians are, are right there yeah so, so what I would say is, and now there is a, a candidate for president. His name's Vivek Rush. Yeah, yeah, Vivek. Um, I, I can't pronounce his last name, but yeah. I'm curious to know what you think about him. I was actually going to text you a couple days ago because I heard him talk. Uh, but yeah, please. Anyway, I've, I've met him. Oh, you have? Yes. I'm not surprised. So uh, here's what I think. He is now through his company, Sweeney McDonald's over their diversity, equity, and inclusion program, 
which I think that we should just call it diversity, equity, and delusion, <laughs> because it is a fake mirage of opportunity, number one, and Blacks get all the blame and none of the benefits. So if you ask yourself, who actually has benefited from most from uh, affirmative action in procurement? Guess which group is at the bottom? Black. Black. In the diversity spin category, Blacks are at the bottom. Hmm. I didn't know this. Okay. Indians get nine times what Blacks get out of diversity. Okay. Okay. It also correlates with the, um, the numbers from the census. So here are the numbers from the census for companies with employees by ethnicity. Majority-owned companies have been 9.4 trillion, women a trillion, Asians 450 billion, Hispanics 276 billion, and Blacks 98 billion. And that 98 billion, and by the way, even though Blacks have double the educational achievement on average as Hispanics, but even that $98 billion is not a real number. It's probably half of that because the majority of the economy is the people who are buying stuff. Uh, let's say it is government, large government, and the Fortune 1000. That's like 80% of GDP. Mm -hmm. So why are Blacks at the bottom? Because nobody does business with Blacks. So everybody benefits from this diversity farce except Blacks. So now what my interpretation of kind of what he said, because I've heard him in person and I've heard him on TV, was my interpretation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The problem in our country is all these woke policies that give unprepared and undeserving opportunities to black people that they're taking from the deserving white and Asian community. My family came here, we didn't have a lot of money, but my parents were married. That's the first thing, why it's successful. My parents are married. Is that a good thing? It's 100% good, good thing. And then voila, I worked hard. I took advantage of all the benefits of being an American. Terrific. There is no doubt you will do better if you grow up in a two-parent household. There's no doubt about it. And if you work hard and you study. But then the question is when it comes to Blacks, what about the Blacks? Do Blacks participate in the economy in proportion to their talent? And how do people, would you rather, what are your odds of being successful? Being a lazy person or an average person, a mediocre person, born to affluent parents or a genius kid born to two middle-class parents? It's almost no doubt that the mediocre kid with the connections is going to do better. Yeah. Because in social capital, which is a primary determinant of opportunity, people in your community pull you forward. Yeah. So because your father knows somebody or your brand, and this is a problem with the brand of Black people, which is unique in this country. Everybody wants to save Black people, so they think about Black adults is tall children. And that's the way that they act. So if you ask somebody what a inner city program is, they should just call it what it is. It's a little black kid program. Mm -hmm. When they're not kids anymore, there's nothing for them. So we go through this cycle. What other community, could you imagine hey, me and two other black guys saying, hey, we have, a, you, we have new immigrants coming to the United States. We're gonna work together. We'll come up with a plan 
on what to do about this immigrant community and how right. they can incorporate themselves in the United States. Right. It sounds crazy. Absolutely. Nobody thinks it's odd at all that mostly wealthy non-Blacks, whites, will sit in a room by themselves. Occasionally, they'll invite somebody, somebody Black in to solve the problem of what to do about those Black people. But so, I want to go back to the the Vivek thing because, um, like I said, I was going to text you, but I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to actually bring this up in the podcast. But um, yeah, he's he's on a huge press run. He's on every single podcast and all that. So I respect the uh, the want to, you know, the hustle that he's doing and whatnot. But some of the stuff that he says, I'm just like, oh, God, I can't believe I'm hearing this. But so how do you take all that? Like, how do you, Robert well, Blackwell, here's what, take that? Here's, here's, what I, here's what I think. One is he is now running for president mm -hmm. he has no chance of winning mm -hmm. but now he's going to be a star he's a he's a 37 year old multimillionaire who's decided that you know he's really smart and he's got my perception he's got the answer to society's problems mm. and what he's doing is he's talking to the base of the republican yeah yeah so he's talking to republicans and he's saying what the stuff that they, what he thinks that they want to hear. My problem is it is it's so uninspirational. And it actually doesn't talk about how we're going to create a better country. Mm -hmm. And him going after now McDonald's through his company saying, I'm, I'm going to sue you to drop your diversity, equity, and delusion programs. And it's all a bunch of fake corporate virtue signaling anyway which if he actually did five minutes worth of research, he would actually see blacks get no benefits from this. Otherwise, if it were actually true, it would come out in the numbers. What so numbers? It would come out in the economic numbers. If blacks were benefiting from all this diversity stuff, then it would. the fact is it would come out in the numbers. The wealth of the black community would be growing. A lot of the, the numbers would be coming out. It, it's not because it's all fake. So, you know, he's these programs you're talking about. Yeah, it's all fake. Yeah. So if he weren't so intellectually lazy, he could have done some research on it. But he didn't because he's the smartest person in the world. And he's decided <laughs> that attacking black people is in a covert way. And telling Asians and white people the reason why you don't have what you want is because of these black people and their special privileges. Doesn't mention the fact at all that, okay, if 6% of blacks are actually in uh, Harvard or Princeton or whatever, and these are private universities with billions and billions and billions of dollars in their uh, endowments, they should pick whoever they want for whatever reason. No, but they're taking government money. Well, the irony of what he says is he's an Indian guy that graduated from Harvard. You know what I mean? And I don't care, like, the, the what he's saying is very hypocritical because there's a good chance that affirmative action is probably one of the, was a deciding factor on him going to college. Well, I don't know. I don't know the guy, but. Maybe, maybe, listen, maybe, maybe not. I have no, no idea. There is no doubt that. Um. He was probably a good student, deserving of getting into Harvard, and I have no idea how he got there. Maybe he just outperformed everybody else in the world. Maybe there was a connection. But 43% of the 
uh, admissions in these Ivy League schools are tied to alumni mm -hmm. or contributors. Nobody seems to think that that's, that's an issue. Yeah. That's eight times higher. Nobody seems to think about in other parts of the economy where Blacks were purposely left out and other communities benefited from unionization, political connections, passing out money. Lots of people have benefited from that. So it is true that your net work is your net worth. There is no doubt about that. If he has kids, his kids are not starting from ground zero. Right, right. And he benefits from the fact that people believe that Indians are intelligent. Right. Blacks have to overcome the perception of incompetence. I think that was one of the, when you said that the first time uh, to me, it, it was like, it was one of those things where I, I know it, but I didn't, like the way you said it, the way you said it to me, I was like, holy shit, that's, that's so true. Like out of any race, every race has a stereotype, but that is, um, that's a horrible starting ground because at least with Indians, you, like you said, Vivek's kids or, you know, whoever kids, you look at them and the first perception that you see is not that they're incompetent. You may no, not get picked like for the basketball team first, but, huh? No, they, they, they will take for granted. Yeah. They get to start from ground zero. They have to prove they're not morons. Yeah. Because people believe that Indians in here, Indians and Chinese are smart. Yeah. And culturally, they, they tend to have uh, behaviors, re their culture reinforce behaviors that tend to lead to academic success. So do Nigerians. So do mm -hmm. other people. However, uh, nobody thinks that even though the great majority of poor people in this country are white, mm -hmm. great majority of people in jail are white. Mm -hmm. Now, proportionally, it's black. But whites, there are more whites in jail than blacks, proportionally, because blacks are 13% of the population. There are more blacks, but they're also disproportionately poor. Yeah. Crime, crime is an economic, it is economic, it is not cultural. So if, if it were cultural, and people say the problem of crime is because of all of this, you know, black culture. When it comes to criminality amongst blacks, that's black culture. When it comes to criminality around whites, that's criminal culture. So there's always two sets of rules when it yeah. comes to us. So the question is, what do we do about it and why should we all be vested? And that's what Tesk is about. Perfect segue. Julius so, Rosenblum, who was the CEO of Sears, responded to Booker T. Washington's call to create a better country. And Booker T. Washington in 1895 said, America's never going to be what it can be until Blacks get included in the economy. He said, we don't need to live around you, but we do have to be a part of the economy. Otherwise, we will be disproportionately involved in crime. So they worked together. He built 5,300 schools. Because uh, it remembered just before that it was illegal to educate blacks in the South, where ninety yeah. percent of blacks were. They built fifty three hundred schools in the South, and then they created the Negro Business League. So in the Jim Crow South, there was eighty one what was called Freedom Colonies or Black Wall Streets, which were relatively prosperous black communities. In fact, the height of black business between nineteen ten and nineteen thirty. So, like any other immigrant group, blacks were immigrants. They migrated from the south to the north. 
for lots of other reasons. No place in the world do you have, listen, you have more poor people in India than you have poor people in, than you have people in the United States. You have more poor people in China than you have people in the United States. So what took 750 million people from India and China out of poverty in 20 years? It's pretty simple. And actually I met with somebody in the central bank from India on a tour of India. It was great. I really enjoyed it. And Wait, he said, just, uh, just so people that don't know you get context, what year was that? 2009. And why, how did you get that opportunity to do that? The ambassador called me. <laughs> and said, would you like to do a tour of India? I said, why not? <laughs> so I met with somebody in the central bank and the head of all these big tech companies, Infosys and Tata and Mahindra Mahindra and ACL. And, it was, and I spoke to, a, it's called CIA, CII, the Conference of Indian Industry or something to that effect. Okay. So I spoke to a group of young entrepreneurs. It was great. So the guy told me was what they figured out, they had to free their economy. So the government started doing business with their small entrepreneurs, which prepared them for the international market. And then U.S. business just did business with capable Asian entrepreneurs. They didn't, they weren't trying to save little Indian kids or little Chinese kids. That's the job of their parents. But they gave them opportunity to demonstrate value. And that sent a signal to the market that if you prepare yourself for these technical abilities, there's jobs for you. And that's why India became kind of the business outsource factory of the world. China, on the other hand, became the manufacturing capital of the world. Mm -hmm. And because they had focused on building things, physical things, that sent a, market, a signal to, the, to their entrepreneurs, prepare yourself for that. And that is why India and China are they the way where they are. And that is sp specifically because of U.S. business. During yeah. the same period, Blacks went deeper into poverty. So uh, what I think is we're either going to prove that this system of free enterprise works for everybody because it will given a chance, or we're going to lose it because young people will be confusing socialism with social good. So with that, the free market, the free enterprise and you're a self-proclaimed libertarian, right? So you're not, it's not the, it's not the left-right um, stuff. But I, I think the free market, because people think of free market capitalism and capitalism is like the same thing, but you've explained it in a way which I, it's hard for me to reiterate that. So I'm just going to have you explain the difference between free enterprise, free market versus the system of capitalism that we have. Okay. Capitalism is the, really, it is the exchange of, money for value that's kind of hey if i want a shirt if i want that orion 3 shirt i'm willing to pay you ten dollars for it it costs you three you sell it to me you're satisfying a customer demand that's to me capitalism okay okay that's part of capitalism no so the exchange of goods now if i am forced to let's say your father let's say we live in uh, I'm going to make a country name up so I don't pick up anybody. Yeah. Let's call it uh, uh, over there a stand. Okay. Okay. Over there a stand. Yeah. <laughs> Your father is the king of over there a stand. Okay. Your business is selling. He says, son, prince, you need to go into business. You need to learn something about business. Okay. What business should I go into? 
go into the t-shirt business. Everybody needs t-shirts in this country. We got 10 million people in the country. Everybody needs t-shirts. Yeah. Great. I decided I want to buy a t-shirt. Where are my options for buying t-shirts and over there stand? It's the son of the king. Prince Benny. Yeah. Prince Benny says, if you want a t-shirt, which I know you're going to need, uh, here's your options. It's me. You're still a capitalist. You're still a capitalist. It's like what you said about Putin. Putin's a capitalist. Yeah. He just has all the capital. Yeah. So if you look at places where, if you look at socialist countries, what you'll see is that the government people have all the money. Yeah. In Venezuela, Maduro's daughter, Maduro transfer, uh, transferred, um, was it $4 billion to a Swiss bank account? So everybody has a natural tendency of man to privatize their winnings and socialize their losses. Yeah. Which means I want to keep what I make, but if I lose, I want somebody else to pay for it. Mm -hmm. And I think with the people who want government to have more power is what they're really saying is, this is what I think and what I want. I think everybody having flowers is a right. And since I think that having flowers is a right, everybody, those rich people, we should take money from rich people to buy flowers that we can distribute. And by the way, the not-for-profits or government are going to get their cut. Right, right. But in a free enterprise system, if you think that everybody ought to have flowers, why don't you just convince your peers to give up their money to fund something that you believe in? Convince them versus using the power of government to coerce. In a free market system, would there would government have no control over business? That, to me, it is what is, first of all, what is the role of government? I can tell you what the a libertarian would believe with the role yeah, of government. Please, yeah. It is to protect the citizenry against coercion, both foreign and domestic. So having a military and having a police force. Okay. That is a that is a role of government. Because throughout history, there's been lots of invasions, lots of places throughout human history. One tribe wants to take over another tribe. They create an army, and then if the other tribe is weaker, they get enslaved. Right. That's it's happened in every part of the world throughout all of human history. So therefore, so, yeah, if you don't have a military to protect you, some other tribe who wants what you have will then, if they're stronger than you, they will take advantage of you. Look at what happened with the Romans. Right, right. Romans conquered the world not because they had nothing better to do is because they wanted something that those other people had. Those things could have been minerals, could have been slaves, it could have been anything. So Europeans going into Africa, Africa is the most mineral rich part of the world. Yeah. So if you don't have a military to protect yourself, you're at the mercy, the mercy of criminals. So Same thing with police. But Ed, okay, so the military and the police let's okay i get that part but what about what's I'm uh, say the next thing yeah next thing is the court system okay you and i have a dispute there should be a neutral arbiter that has no financial incentive in the outcome 
that's not totally true, but that's how it should work. So the government should, in my view, run both the civilian, I mean, both civil and criminal, the civil and criminal court system. Okay. Okay. That's another natural, I mean, appropriate role of government. Okay. Okay. Uh, I'm trying to think anything else after that. Uh, not much. So it is, there were three things, right? Protecting the citizenry, looking at uh, in the court system. Maybe there's something else I'm forgetting. But when it comes to business, I don't think it should be, if you could say the government is protecting you in business, it's like, here's, here's an area, polluting a waterway. Mm-hmm. Should I be able to regulate that? If I open a steel factory and I'm a right, I'm sitting on a river yeah. that provides drinking water to a town downstream, does a government have any is it appropriate for the government to be involved in the protection of people from toxic waste from a plant? The answer is yes. Because that is not anything that they can do anything about except to move. So, yeah, I think in that role, when it comes to protecting people from harm, in my view, there is, there's a role for government. But couldn't anything be no out as harm to people? At least it could be a bad, it could be, people could use that as an excuse for more government. Right. But I would say, let's say this little thing right here. Okay. Now let's say this. This is free. This is example of free market. They say, Benny, I want to sell you this. What's your? What are you going to say if I say, Hey, I want to sell you this? What's the natural question? Let's yeah. you want it. Yeah. What's the next question? What's the question for you? Is it? How much is it? Yep. This is a hundred thousand dollars. No, thank you. Okay. Now, hold on a second. This was George Washington's case. This was George Washington's case. He was the first customer of Carmex. And this is the first bottle of Carmex ever sold and was sold to George Washington. Yeah, no thanks. I see the Walgreens sticker on there, so. Uh, Hold a second. (laughs) Wait a second. So let's go in reverse. But I get what you're saying. No, no. Let's go in reverse. Okay. Ask me if I want to buy it. Robert, would you like to buy this? Uh, how this much Carmex? is it? How much is it? $3. Yeah, $3. Uh, I can, if I can get it into store for two fifty, why should I give you $3? Because I'm here right now and your lips are dry. Yeah, okay. Great. That's a good argument. But, but ask store is three, uh, 20 minutes away. Ask me, that's a good answer. Ask me for $100,000. Okay, it's $100,000. Why is it $100,000? Because it's, you'll never have to. No, no, no. Was this George Washington's original Carmex? Yeah. Yeah, great. Sold. I'll buy it. Okay, so, but isn't that... No, here's a, so I'm going to, you wanted to know about the free enterprise system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But isn't that what. So why, the question is, why did I pay a hundred thousand dollars for it? Yeah. 
I what's a perception I, of value? I'm a, no, I, yeah, I'm a I'm a billionaire. I yeah. collect George Washington memorabilia. There's only one of these in the world, so a hundred thousand dollars is a bargain. Because I happen to know that if there is the first of anything from George Washington, there are collectors who will pay $10 million for it. I know a guy right now, a friend of mine who's a collector, who's also into George Washington stuff. If I can verify the authenticity of this, he'll give me $10 million. So why else? would somebody spend $50 million on a Picasso? All it right. is, right. is ink and a canvas. So I feel like art, like I'm glad you brought that up because I feel like art, um, these rich people things basically, uh, baseball cards, all that. I think that's, uh, that's where I see real, the sense of the word libertarianism because it's not mass produced. It's no, 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 no. You're missing the point. Okay. It has nothing to do whether it's mass produced or not mass produced. The thing is, if it is a voluntary, if it's a voluntary uh, transaction between me and you, the buyer and seller have to come to our agreement or there will be no sale. Yeah. That's it. It's either we come to an agreement of value or there's no sale. It doesn't matter what it is or what reason it was. So there should be no maybe, interference maybe. from the government. No, absolutely um, not in that case. So yeah. I'm I'm guessing you're a huge supporter of Bernie Sanders then. No. And, uh, <laughs> no, I mean, it's uh, so that part I get. And so I see the contradiction for sure between libertarianism and socialism, 100%. So you asked about the free market. Free market yes. is when there is voluntary exchange. That's it, voluntary exchange. We shouldn't have to prove to anybody else what the value of this is. It is something that solely you and I can make the determination on. So the argument with that, and I, I talked to my friends who are very, um, not socialist, but a lot more um, away, further away from libertarianism. And the, the argument that they say is, well, there could be the you know where the if two companies produce a type of medication or one company produces a type of medication they could put the value so high that most people can't afford it so then how do you answer that so here's a here's a question i'll i'll answer yeah because you have made first of all the only way that they can have that medication to be so high is if you have restricted competition without restricting competition which government does all the time what will happen is you can you cannot have a monopoly without government participation. It's almost impossible. That's... Because you have to use the power of government to one way or another exclude somebody else from competing in an industry. So if, so two things, in supply and demand. Okay. The reason why this CarMax is $2 or whatever it is and not $2,000 is because somebody else can come into the market solve the same problem. And if they see there's a lot of profit margin in there, they will go after that market, forcing every other player to lower their prices. Okay. So the consumer is always looking for the lowest price. The producer is always looking for the highest price. Right. So therefore, you get 
you, things tend to get, markets tend to get more efficient over time. So I'll give you an example, light bulbs. Mm -hmm. A pack of uh, GE light bulbs, let's say X years ago, yeah. was $3.16. Okay. When they started selling into Walmart a year or so later, how much was the same three pack? A lot less. 89 cents. It was originally $3? Yeah. yeah. Over $3 to 89 cents. Why is that? Simple economics. Because Walmart's brand promise is always the lowest price. Mm -hmm. Therefore, because more people buy more things at lower prices, Walmart says, we are going to take out all unnecessary cost because more people will buy from us if they trust us to give them the lowest price stuff. So in that case, you're protecting, you're protecting the consumer. And because they own a distribution mechanism, they have the producers who have to sell through that distribution mechanism have to adapt to the reality of customer demand and who owns the, the distribution vehicle. So government protects high prices. Now here's something, so question. Uh, Jay-Z is a billionaire. Jay-Z, let's say that for every time you download something from him, let's say he like gets his music? Yeah, his music. his music? Yeah, let's say that every time he sets up a company and every time you want something from him or Beyonce, you got to pay him a dollar. You have to pay him a dollar to download his music. Okay. Who should make the determination of whether or not that download is worth a dollar? You, customer. Customer. Yeah. Exactly. So what would happen if there ends up being a billion downloads from his music? How much will he make? A billion dollars. A billion dollars. Now, who's going to complain about that? It was totally voluntary. Yeah. Now, do people need music? Yeah. No. Well, they, they don't need it, but they want it. Yeah. They want it. And they're yeah. willing to take their money. And when they take their money, they're making trade-offs. If they use this dollar for this, they can't use it for anything else. So therefore, through voluntary cooperation, somebody has music that they want. And Jay-Z is a billionaire. Who got hurt? Nobody. Okay. Did he take money from anybody? I mean, he got paid, but he didn't. He got, exactly. Was there a, was there a leg full of money that he stole from? No. No. That is a free market. It was voluntary cooperation. You want something, I produce it, you buy it. We're both better off or we wouldn't do it. Now, let's, let's suppose you lived in a communist country. And the government said to you, if you don't download uh, Hail to the Dictator mm -hmm. and pay a dollar per download, and we're going, to, we're going to monitor how many downloads you do, we expect you and your family to download music twice a day. 
and we expect you to listen to hail to the dictator. Yeah. Now, they got a country of 10 million people, let's say 10 million people who, who have the wages to buy it, that is uh, 10 million people times twice a day, is 20 million downloads a day, times 365 uh, days a year. Now, the king or the dictator now has billions and billions and billions of dollars. Right. Okay. Which most of them do, by the way. Yep. And it's okay. not, and it wasn't a want. It's amazing. No, it wasn't voluntary. Mm -hmm. Now you have taken out, he's enriched himself by taking money out of the economy through coercion. Mm -hmm. We have forced people to, to buy this or else. That's coercion. It's mm -hmm. still capitalism, but it's coercive because it depends on force. It's exactly like if you ever watched any things of the mafia. Yeah. With the garbage. And if you wanted to, if you had a business. Yeah. And you wanted to take out the trash, there were only three companies that you had to pick from. The mafia owned them all. Therefore, they could sell the price. Right. It's at the price. Is that capitalism? It is capitalism. Is it free enterprise? No. Got it's it. Coercion. Because, um, so it, that, going back to that example that we use about the, the medication, that actually, I didn't think about it like that because in, in essentially you think government helps not to have monopolies, but in reality, they're actually helping create monopolies. Create monopolies, create monopolies 100%. That makes a lot more sense. Um, in terms of going back to the, uh, the test stuff, and you know we've had a couple of different events, discussions, Orion 3 related um, with that. If you want to, what's your next step with TESC? Well, the next step, you know, frankly, with TESC is we've had a lot of presentation that people kind of, I think, agree on the, on the need. Yeah. A critical point in our country's history. How do we now energize a movement? And again, this is a movement of people of goodwill dedicated to proving that the free enterprise system works for everybody. So how do we get people to go on this journey by getting people solely through voluntary cooperation mm -hmm. us do business? And if we do that, everybody will benefit because crime will go down. Educational performance will go up. We have to innovate our way out of the challenges that we have, which is one of the issues that I really have, frankly, with Vivek, which is yeah. what what inspirational can we do that brings people together without, I don't want to call it scapegoating, another group of people? Yeah. So things are better, and we should have learned through history what happens when those things happen. Are we better than that? I think the last time our country rallied around some big purpose was when President Kennedy said in September 1962, we choose to go to the moon in this decade, not because it's easy, but because it's hard. And it's a mission worthy of our best efforts. That mission energized the country and everybody was into that. That created the opportunity for the black female mathematicians featured in the movie Hidden Figures. Neil Armstrong said, I'm not getting in that rock until Katherine Johnson specifically maps my way back home. In fact, at that time, the definition of a, a computer was a person that computed. Yeah, yeah. So- Wait, was um, Katherine Johnson, was that the woman that uh, created the technology for GPS? No. It was another, it was that black woman that actually did that. Yeah, yes. Katherine Johnson was one of 
these women that worked at NASA that actually okay. mapped the trajectory to, to get them back from the moon. Okay. That was their job. So that's why she was so important to Neil Armstrong. So there was no diversity thing. He didn't say, I got to go pick myself a black woman so that I can tell everybody what a good human being I am. No. <laughs> he wasn't putting his life at risk. He said, I know that woman's got talent. I trust her. Yeah, That's what we're going to do. Yeah. And after that, a lot of the wealth that has come through the computing industry, you can trace it back to that. There had been computers and investment in computers. That computers is just technology that makes the delivery of work more efficient. Yeah. But a lot of the more sophisticated technology and stuff came out of those, those investments that gave the rise to the really the computer industry. Right. So what I would say to people is, my friends specifically, can't we talk about something that's a little bit more aspirational where we're trying to lift people up creating a pathway for hope and opportunity where you tell people we have two responsibilities. You have a, you have an opportunity as an individual to prepare yourself for the opportunities that this country gives you. But also if you've been the beneficiary and we've all been beneficiaries, nobody's leaving the United States to go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. That's not true. Not nobody, very few people. Yeah, I know people that left Chicago. I don't know anybody that's left the United States, even yeah. though they say all this. And I personally think the United States, even though there's shit happening that just that I'm not happy with, that nobody's happy with, um, it's still the best country in the world. I still have family that are still coming here from India. I, I have a cousin. Yeah. So it's yeah, nobody's leaving the we US. Have a great, we have, listen, we have a great but imperfect country. And those of us that have had some measure of success, and we all have some measure of success living here, have a responsibility to those that came before us to do something for those that are going to come after us and to create cap opportunity for lots of people where you have the ability to have an impact. Yeah. So demonizing groups of people doesn't help anybody. It destroys our country. So therefore, if you're that smart and you care about the country, come up with something that is aspirational that helps pull people from poverty to prosperity and your lectures aren't doing it. Well, one of the things that you said that there's a lot that you said that I, um, you know, obviously that affected me and it made me think, but one of the things was you said that it doesn't matter if you're racist, if you want to create a better country, you need blacks to do better in the economy. Well, look, I, I, my, my personally, my personal feeling is that in a free country, your opinions about me don't matter unless right. you prevent me from doing something that I want to do. Right. So I don't care whether you like me, don't like me because I'm black or because I got curly hair. I live in Chicago or I have brown eyes. It doesn't really matter to me. If you can't keep me from doing something I want to do, I don't really care what you think. Yeah. So that's one thing. That's my own view. But I believe what Booker T. Washington said, and frankly, a lot of the business people who came out of that generation, who also helped Booker T. Washington, it is that America is never going to be what it can be until Blacks get included in the economy. In proportion to our talent, mm -hmm. it has nothing to do with a quota. Right. So I don't think anybody, intelligent person, can say there aren't enough qualified blacks to to. So have. here's here's what I'll say to that. Here's what I'll say to that. Um, I told you I grew up 
and uh, I faced racism, prejudice from every single race. Uh, I grew up in Model Spark, so but I, I was, you know, we grew up very. I, poor, I grew up poor in a low income neighborhood, and the only people that gave me a sense of belonging was my black friends, right? By the way, I think it's ironic that I get to this point in my life, and the one person that I'm I've gotten the biggest impact from is, uh, you know, you, <laughs> an older successful black guy. But when we were when we were growing up, there was no, there wasn't a sense of. Um, like, I, I didn't know people like you existed. Me and, and none of my friends, we knew, we didn't know that people like you existed. So I will say, I think there's a lot of, I think perception determines everything. And I think there is a perception that um, people like Robert Blackwell, people who I, now the people who I have as friends who are Black, I mean, they're entrepreneurs, just leaders who have done really good things in the world and really smart. It's not talked about enough. That's why, like, I'm intentional about trying to, Problem is, not, more. Huh? here's the issue. This is not a communication issue. This is not, it's a market evidence issue. Wait, what do you mean by communication issue? To me, it's like, evidence? hey, more people need to know about people like me. Yeah. Okay, first of all, I am in the world of business, I am insignificant. That's number one. I'm not anybody special by any means. The issue is, since Blacks aren't participating in the economy, since nobody's doing business with black companies, they're virtue signaling about it, but they're not doing anything. Right. Uh, so blacks of talent aren't given the opportunity to demonstrate their value. So if that were the case, you would have much larger black businesses. You would be able to know who these people were. So it's not a communication issue. It's a market participation issue. So I'm going to challenge you. And this is from your own question that you asked me the first time I talked to you. And I've heard you ask this a hundred to hundreds, if not thousands of people name three nationally well-known black entrepreneurs that have no ties to sports and entertainment i give you credit every single time but i've i've asked this to at least 100 people just this so, year so let me give you another so let yeah. me think about it another way yeah name two famous jamaican hockey players i have no idea you can't okay how about this name two famous jamaican cricket players oh actually they play cricket in jamaica uh I'm well, no, but what I was going to say is you said it earlier, right? There's more white people in prison than there are uh, Let's black, Let's talk right? about this issue. Yeah, this yeah, yeah. Of okay. market participation. Yeah. The point is that they don't exist. They don't exist in any meaningful way because nobody does business with blacks in any meaningful way. That's the problem. That's why you can name black athletes. You can name black entertainers. You can name... Uh, lots and lots of famous uh, white business people, Asian business people. In fact, that drives behavior. If I were to go to India. But then isn't, that a, isn't behavior, there a communication issue? No. So my point is the following. Yeah. yeah. You were going to say, name two famous, uh, I'm just going to pick something, Mexican football players. Or and let's say better yet, name two famous French football players. I'm talking about American football players. Yeah. Nobody could do it. You know right. why? Because they don't exist. Maybe if they exist, maybe they exist, but probably not. So what I'm saying is, since they're not participating, yeah, it's the it's the lack of participation is the issue. It's not the lack of communication. Hmm. If they were participating, it would be known in the market already. You don't need a PR campaign around that. You don't need a PR campaign when there's market evidence. Yeah. That's the issue. 
the, where I get the, so what I was going to ask you was if you were to look at, like people can't name that, but they could name three black people that have been shot by the police easily because they, they get talked about. Okay. So part of it is like, this is, this is another problem with, first of all, you need to understand how the media works. Mm -hmm. Media are private companies that make money by having people watch their broadcast. You will never see on television the following. Robert Blackwell Jr., this black guy, got up, made sure his daughter had breakfast, and then they went to work together. Right, right. And then when they came home, uh, she decided she wanted to go swimming. So he took his daughter swimming. Right. Now, I get how that. Much, how much is that going to be on the news? That is what life mostly is in every single community, most of it. Now, what is going to get on the news? Somebody broke into a store with a gun and did this and shot yes. somebody or a group of kids, 100 groups of kids took over something and they made some noise or there was this bad thing happened or that bad thing happened or the other bad thing happened. Or it is the unusual that gets media. Not the usual. It's the unusual. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's sensational. Yeah. So when it comes to, since it is a fact, police, white police kill more white criminals and criminal suspects right. than kill blacks. But I bet you can't name three more black, white people who were no, killed by cops. That's that is correct because it doesn't end up in the news. Right. Black police officers shoot more black suspects than white police officers. Mm -hmm. Is that news? Nobody's going to talk about that because it doesn't fit to fit the narrative. Now, is it is the case, however, I want to I don't want to seem like I am saying that police brutality is not a real thing and it hasn't affected blacks. It has. I've had police pull guns on me. Uh, when I was a teenager, I was driving with my car, my car and uh, with my sister. Policeman told me to pull over and pull the gun. I wasn't doing anything. Hmm. Maybe I was speeding or something. Mm. but yeah that's there there's an issue there 100 yeah who gets affected by this mostly poor people yes michael jordan's not afraid of getting shot by a policeman i don't care right. what he says right he's more likely to be shot by like who killed his father with some young people now unfortunately i think this is why it's so important that i think we work together to create the economic opportunity for everybody now to me if you're too lazy to take care to take advantage of the opportunity that's presented to you, I, I don't know what to do for you. Right. But the idea is that we should be trying to solve, making sure people are not going into poverty by doing the things to create economic participation. And my own belief is that has to be led by the, entrepreneur, by the entrepreneurs in those communities. That's how every other group has gone from poverty to prosperity. So when you think about, and like I said, you're not, we've talked about next steps for Tesco and all that and what you're trying to figure out. But who are the people that really um... are started? The question is, movements are started typically by a small group of people mm -hmm. who convince a larger group of people to come along on a journey with them mm -hmm. because there's an opportunity to solve an issue that they deeply care about. Uh, so what I think is that we have being the beneficiaries of a system 
that we have. We all have a responsibility to participate in this thing together. I'm going to tell you two of the people that I love most in this earth are a guy named Vinay and Sanjay uh, Tolia. They're families from India. They're born here. Uh, I've learned a lot. And this is why you need to have a diverse set of friends. Human beings progress when they learn from other people. Mm -hmm. the alphabet that we have here is, I think it was from India. Uh, the numeric system. I know the numeric. No, it's not. The, the, the numeric numbers. system is Indian. That's why we're all good at math. <laughs> why people were actually, uh, why people actually thought it was from uh, somebody else, but it's actually Indian, I believe. Yeah. So we benefit from a wealth of human knowledge. And that's also the power of exchange. You learn from different people. And when you get to exchange with people, you learn things from people. So these two guys I consider my brothers, they bought a killer spin table. And that's how we became friends. And through me talking to them, it's like, man, I want to be like them because they were traders at the time. And I used to be a trader. Yeah. So a lot of the inspiration from, for Quant 16 came about from my interactions with them. I have people from people that I love and care about from every place in the world. I have a niece, a woman that I can consider my niece. She's from China. Uh, people from Africa, all kinds of people. So what I would say, why I think task is important is important is that I think that we need to create this sense of community where we're pulling people forward instead of the tribalism where we are convinced that we're the best of us and they are the worst of them and everybody would be better if it wasn't for those horrible people in that other group yeah so. well yeah well one thing you mentioned that I want to make sure I I want to before we're done here is um being a father because I like I said, I don't, you say you're not significant in the business. You, you're on a whole different level. And I put you, you know, on a, uh, on a pedestal in terms of the, what you've been able to accomplish and the type of person you are and the relationships that you build, but you have a daughter. Mm -hmm. And I think my respect level actually went up even more for you because I remember we were at the test meeting where there was like 70 people and you're in the middle of a presentation and it was 6 PM and your phone rang and you literally said to the audience, guys, hold on one second. I got to take this call. And it was your daughter, right? And I, so I know you're, I've seen how you are as a father and that literally made me respect you even more. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not a parent. I don't have an interest in being a parent to a human child. My child just got on my lap right now because um, whatever, but um, talk to me about your father and how that's transpired, how that's affected your life. Me being a father or my father? No, you being a father. You being a father, okay. Yeah. Well, listen, I, uh, my view of the world is I made her, so it's my responsibility to take care of her. Yeah. Uh, at least she doesn't look like the mailman, so I'm pretty sure I made her. <laughs> so, <laughs> look, I, I think that's what I think. I made her. The responsibility of a father is to protect his family in the short and long term. So therefore, my job is to make sure that she has the best chance of living a great life she can, and that is my responsibility. So. Um, I think she, I think God blessed me with her. So, so when how old is she? 21 now? 26 now. She's 26. Okay. So, and a lot of your growth has come the last 26 years. I mean, when you think about EK digital, uh, quant killer spin, all those things happened, what the last 16 to 26 years. Well, listen, I, I EK digital started 25 years ago. Okay. So, but that, that's my point. Like she was, you had her too. So being a dad and building these multiple companies 
How did that, how was, how did that affect one another? Well, typically it's hard, it's hard to say, but I, I will say this. As you mature in life, you go through different stages of your life. The most successful time in business, typically between when you're 40 and 60, mm -hmm. you are then kind of preparing for that up until about that age. Uh, if I go back and look at the dumb stuff that I've done in my life, uh, you know, from when I was teens to no, nothing illegal or dangerous or anything, but just goofy things that I thought and mistakes that I made. And um, you mature. And that coincides typically with having a family. Typically, married men make more money than single men. Mm. That's, yeah, I believe it. Uh, is my own view is it helped, it helped me. And it also coincided to something that my father also told me when uh, I'd started this company and it would have been in like 1990 and I had an office and my father came to my office. It was a little office. I had an office and the, the guys that were working for the company programmers and stuff, they were all sitting on metal chairs at a single table and I had an office. And my father said to me, you need to get out of that office. Never treat the people that, that work for you better than you treat yourself. So since then, I've never had anything where I've been in a place where I have an office that other people don't and, and, things, and things like that. So I'd say that was a good lesson. I also remember during that time, there's a friend of mine from Pakistan that said, pay attention to this internet thing. This is going to change everything. Now, from somebody your, your age, you probably can't imagine life before the, the internet. But there was like the world, like I can't imagine a time when there was no cars. Right. You know, there was transportation. You needed a draft animal, like an oxen or a horse or something like that. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, I forgot where, where I was going with that, but. That was that was another lesson that I that I got from my father. But the um, with with your daughter, I guess like I I would like I said I'm not a father, but all my friends are parents. All my good friends are parents, and it's always like uh, I seen the mindset change from them wanting to, you know, achieve all this success to going from okay, I want to create a better world for my my one hundred percent. Go from when you're single. And when you're, when you're, when you're single and you're growing up, you kind of have a me mentality, right? Right. Because you go from a period where your parents are taking care of you. Right. So when you go out and you're taking care of yourself, right. But then when you, you have a family, it goes to now you're responsible for taking care of somebody else. Right. So you have to look at the world through the eyes of now I've got a responsibility to somebody else. Mm -hmm. I have to think about that responsibility, by the way, which I think is good for you, because the way, in my view, the way you get what you want is by helping other people get what they want, which means you have to take your eyes off yourself and start thinking about others before yourself. That's my little view of the world anyway. But do you think that um, everything that you're doing right now, it's creating a better world for your daughter or a better life for your daughter? Is that your driving factor? I would say there's two different things. Um, one is to make sure that she's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Because chances are she's going to be a lot around a lot longer than I am. 
And mm -hmm. I want to make sure that she's going to be, you know, she's going to be okay. Like, yeah. uh, but then what I think is, one is, I think I'm one of the luckiest people on earth. I always would say, hey, I'm the second luckiest person in the world after Barack. Uh, <laughs> Which we don't, we're not even going to get end up going getting into, but that's one of your guys, right? That's your, when well, I, told, I would Barack say Obama used to work for Robert Blackwell. Well, here's the thing. I would say this is another lucky thing in my life. I'm just lucky. And I don't take the granted for that I'm lucky. Now, uh, I, and I think I'm lucky in a lot of ways. I'm lucky to be born in the United States to two good parents that didn't have a lot of money. I'm lucky to have opportunity in areas where I have a little bit of capability. Uh, that helped me overcome my lack of, you know, emotional intelligence. Um, so I think I'm really lucky. Meeting Barack was luck. So we became friends. That was just luck. You know, I met lots of other people kind of through luck. Part of the business, I think it's, I have a lot of luck that I don't take for granted. So I think there are people that came before me that created the opportunities that I have today. So I owe it to them to do something to create opportunities for the people that are that are younger than I am. So speaking of people you've met, one of the things I posted on social media was you um you playing you teaching Mike Tyson how to play ping pong. Was that the first time you met Mike Tyson? That was the first time I met Mike Tyson. I have a I have a friend who invited me say, "Hey, Mike's Mike Tyson's coming over here. He's investing in this business. Uh would you like to meet him?" I said, "Sure, why not?" And he had a killer spin table there, so we were there and I was just playing with uh table how was that I, I i can tell you i uh i am unimpressed with celebrities in general i've met a lot of them i mean I, i'm just not i like him as a person yeah no different from the guy that the lady that cleans our office that works at the building I'm not any more excited to meet Mike Tyson than I was the lady that cleans our office. Yeah. So, you know, I've met lots and lots of people in, in the world and lots of billionaires and the Pope and Bo Jackson and Magic Johnson. I mean, lots and lots and lots and lots of people who are celebrities. I, if they're nice people, I enjoy meeting them. Yeah. If they're arrogant. I, I, I'm not, I'm not impressed, but I don't tend to be thrilled about media. I mean, people that are kind of in the limelight. Yeah. They're good people. They're nice people. They're interesting people. They're polite people. And I found Mike to be kind of an engaging, nice person. So I say, hey, Mike, why don't you, uh, uh, I'll teach you how to play table tennis. He said, okay, that's nice. So we played. That was it. <laughs> it's funny to see him do that. No, I'm actually the same way. I, I don't. I think it's also, uh, as I got older, I got to understand that I, th I don't think celebrities, it doesn't appeal to me anymore. Uh, real people, real conversations like the one that we're having with people that really get shit done. That's what, that's what matters to me. That's what, um, that's what drives me. So, um, but see, this is what I mean. We could talk for 10 hours. I could talk to you for fucking 10 hours, man. And not, and still be completely, I just noticed it's one twenty-seven right now. So it's been two and a half hours. <laughs> this is going to be fun breaking down, but, um, I appreciate you, man. You know that already. Um, thank you so much for doing this. And on another note, I, I think I told you this, but I think one of the, I told my parents as soon as, uh, last December, whenever, and I asked you to be on my advisory board and you said, yes, that was just like, holy shit, this is so cool that he's doing that. So I appreciate you as a human being, as a friend, and so I have all the respect in the world for you. And yes, your voice does need to be heard more. 
Yeah. And now you can go tell your parents, man, I didn't know what I was getting into. <laughs> Should have picked somebody nicer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I trust me. The one thing I trust myself more than anything else is my instinct on people that like nobody else's I trust more than mine. So it's just, uh, it is serendipitous how all this stuff happened. All right, man. Well, listen, it's good to see you, Benny. Thanks so much. All right, brother. Talk to you later. All right, man.